It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Okay, it's budget week. It is budget week. Happy budget week to you. Yeah, it was fairly casual. Yeah, yeah. The budget came out Monday. What, about 4? 5.30. Yeah, about 5.30. Pouring through it. They had a press conference. Monday afternoon. Kind of hit the highlights. Yeah, so what are the highlights? I would say one of the highlights that I think folks may be interested in is that there's not Medicaid expansion in this budget, but there is that extension for low-income pregnant women that currently is 60 days and is now going to be for up to a year. So that is kind of like another inch towards Medicaid expansion, but not Medicaid expansion. I think it was no surprise to anyone that we saw the Senate's tax cuts in their budget. They've been very clear about that, that they were going to put it in there, and they did a bigger tax cut than previously discussed because of those numbers that we just got last week, the revenue forecast. Another thing that was really interesting about what the Senate did was that they mixed that state, our state money with the federal ARP money, and so they mix that together. So as you page through the budget, you have to look at the budget code to know whether it's state or federal money. And they created a state fiscal recovery fund. And so it comes out of there. A couple of things that are a little more controversial. One, they included the Council of State needing to sign off on emergency orders. That's something we've seen in various forms Mm -hmm. over the last year or so. And the other thing was that the Senate has done a couple of committees on the so-called collusive settlements from the State Board of Elections. And that's really targeted at both the State Board of Elections and Attorney General Josh Stein. On those last two points, this is not just a spending document. We are putting some policy in the budget, which is not uncommon, right? I mean, we we do this. Right. So tying the hands of the executive branch in two places, the governor's ability to shut down our economy, however you want to put it, as he faced the pandemic, that's number one. And then number two, really upset with the attorney general and the allowance of ballots to arrive the next Friday after the election. So they, they're, right. they're upset about that, that settlement. And, and so if I, correct me if I'm wrong, the attorney general moving forward will have to inform or get the consent from the president Parties. pro tem yeah. and the speaker of the house. And that was controversial because the legislature the legislature was a named party in that lawsuit. So they were saying that they weren't informed before that settlement was agreed upon and they should have been informed as parties in the lawsuit. It is going to be an issue, I imagine, with the governor as he contemplates a final budget. If this survives into the House and then into a conference report, This has got to be one of the things that the governor will be concerned about. And he has already sent some messages uh, to the General Assembly, specifically the Senate, that he disapproves of what he's seen so far. His tweet reads, The Senate budget mortgages the future health and education of our people to the corporations and wealthiest among us. $13 billion tax cut. 
Just awful. A measly 1.5% raise for teachers next year after no raise last year. Thank goodness the budget process has a long way to go. And he signed off on that tweet, signifying that it came from him. Yeah. In the press conference on Monday, Senator Berger got pressed about, you know, how will the governor respond to this? And I thought Senator Berger was actually open to negotiations. He says, we will have talks with the governor. We know we will have talks with the House. This, this is, is not the budget that will be signed. The governor will not sign this budget. That's right. And and the House is going to make changes. The Senate acknowledged that in their social media. We have a long process to go. I want to unpack that. But before I do, I want to get to how the Senate, we were in appropriations on Tuesday. That's right. Vast difference on the House side, when they're doing their budget, you go into room 643 of the Legislative Office building, and you bring a lunch. You're there from 9 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. to 5 or 6 p.m. It's a long budget process in the House, and there are so many amendments. I remember like 50-ish last budget go-round, and on the Senate side, They kept reading, so in the morning when they met, they kept reading the rules for amendments and saying they have to be in by 10. Of course, committee started at 8.30, and each subcommittee chair went over their section of the budget. And so by the time that was done, it was 9.45, and then Senator Harrington kept saying amendments have to be in by 10, they have to be submitted to the clerk by 11.30, and as... Luke, who is the staffer who was reading off what those rules were, was reading it. You're just sitting there thinking, there aren't going to be any amendments. This sounds like, bottom line, no amendments can be are going to be accepted. I think Susan Vick tweeted something to that nature that was pretty funny. Because of that, there were only four amendments. Yeah, four amendments. Spent the first part of the morning the various subcommittee chairs presenting their section of the budget. Some questions, Democrats did make some comments, but you come back after a recess and four amendments. And so I know how the Senate operates, but you charge up your laptop, you bring a little snack, I open up my computer, I start to do some work. To be clear, Brian brings a snack everywhere, so this isn't really that special. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you you never know what's going to happen at the General Assembly, so you need to bring sandwiches. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, I get halfway through my work, and then I hear no more amendments. And we are out within less than an hour of the allotted time period. I think it was like 25 minutes. 25 minutes. So the bill leaves the Appropriations Committee, goes to the Finance Committee, And then we are recording this podcast on Thursday. They are having their first vote today. At 2 o'clock. We're recording prior to that vote. The second vote will be Friday morning. That's right. Budget bills are two-day bills, so they have to be voted on second and third reading in two separate days. And as a reminder, your first reading is when that initial bill is read in. So the voting readings are second and third reading. Yeah. So it's required by the Constitution that if you're raising taxes, lowering taxes, any finance uh, bill has to be voted on over two days. So that's why the budget uh, is voted on over two days. So the bill 
is will pass the Senate. The question is whether Democrats will be joining the Republicans in voting yes. You got an indication as to how that's going to play out? It seems that the Democrats have put out some statements expressing their displeasure with the budget and the budget process, that they weren't consulted, those sorts of things that you hear every year. But there may be a couple of folks who are peeled off. Mm. I think it was interesting to note that one of the accepted amendments was from a Democrat. Uh, Senator Devier, who was on our podcast last week. He has been identified as one of the targets that Republicans would like to pick up on the Senate vote for the budget. I think Senator Don Davis, Democrat out in the Pitt County area, Eastern North Carolina area, I think he is someone they're relying on to vote for the budget. He voted for the budget in last session. They tend to invest a lot into ECU, the School of Medicine. And they did do that in this budget. Yeah. If you're representing that area, it is an economic engine in eastern North Carolina. Let's talk a little bit about lobbyist reactions to the budget, and I should say interest group reactions. So the budget has a lot of good things in it, and it may have some things that were excluded by interest groups. And there's really two ways of responding to the budget. You have groups that just, if they're not in it, they just pan it, right? They're, and we, we've heard that from various associations out there that just, oh, this is terrible. It's a terrible budget. Other groups know that this is a long game. The Senate is going to send over the budget to the House next week. And the House is going to take out provisions that they don't like. They're going to put in spending priorities that they do like. And oftentimes what's missed in these budget maneuverings, especially in the beginning stages, is that the Senate will purposefully leave out certain priorities that they know the House wants because they want the House to negotiate with them on the priorities that the Senate wants. So it might And the House will do the same thing to the Senate. Yeah, the House does the same thing. It is a it is a very common negotiation that happens in politics between lawyers. It happens at the workplace. Very common. And so oftentimes the conference report is vastly different than both versions of the budget. And you see this posturing early on. How an interest group responds really does take some discipline. It takes viewing it in that long game. The interest groups that do that, I believe, are the interest groups that are putting themselves in a position, a positive position, to get what they need for their clients, for their interest in that final budget. The House has taken an interesting approach that I haven't seen in the past, where their subcommittees are meeting and going over the Senate budget together in full committees. And I I don't think I've seen that before, where they're looking at the budget and having fiscal explain it to them and asking questions. Yesterday I was in GenGov, and at the end of committee, Representative Rydell said, all right, you've seen what they, they said. Get me your top two priorities by the end of the week. I think this is a part of the House strategy where they want to pick up Democrats as well. 
both chambers leaders are very aware that they are going to need Democrats to vote with them. I believe it's three votes in the House, two votes in the Senate to override a governor's veto. And I think the best way to do that is to have transparency at the subcommittee level, because that is the big gripe from Democrats. You didn't include us in the process. We didn't have input. We didn't have say. And now you're asking us to vote for this budget to to get this done early takes away that argument, and it really does give them buy-in. It's interesting we're in this place now because two months ago when we were talking about the potential budget, we were hearing the governor wants to sign a budget. Everyone is, you know, fist bumping and elbow bumping and rah-rah, go team, and now here we are. The governor just tweeting out how he hates the Senate budget and... We're in the same place we were two years ago. So where the House goes from there and where the House and Senate go from there and what those negotiations with the governor look like from here forward, it's going to be really interesting. It is. Good start by the Senate. Looking forward to the House. Looking forward to the conference report. And looking forward to the governor getting a budget. And signing it. And signing it so that North Carolina will have its first full budget in three years. Yes. Is that going to happen? You want to make bets now? I don't think so. I don't think I want to make a bet. All right. Another big headline this week is the unemployment deal between the House and the Senate. A week ago, they were on different tracks. They were, and they agreed to cut off that federal $300 a week supplement. They added the House's version that had those child care subsidies, which was attractive to some Democrats. And they also put in a provision that requires someone on unemployment who's applying for jobs to respond to a job interview within two days or 48 hours. And I thought that was an interesting provision to include, um, especially with the work requirements being struck down in some other states, how that will play out. I think could be interesting, but also the governor would probably veto this and who knows if they would get an override. A couple Democrats I know voted for this in the Senate. Yes. Did enough Democrats vote in the House to send a signal to the governor as to what's going to happen if he vetoes it? I believe they did, but that was, you know, the House version versus the Senate version it appears that the House kind of won on this, mm-hmm. which is not something that happens that often. We will put this in something maybe we will see next week as a development. Be interesting to see if the governor does veto it right before the July 4th holiday when they're mm. expected to get out of here. Good point, good point. If you thought masks were gone, they are not. Although It has been nice to walk around without a mask. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I have one on me right now. But there was a bill this week in the House. I think it was called like Free the Smiles. Something like that. We've had some creative bill titles this, this session. That being one of them. Yeah, we have. And this bill passed yesterday in the House. It would make it a local option whether or not to require students, kids, 
to wear masks at school. There was Representative Willis's son testified in committee, and it passed the House 66 to 44. So that is not veto-proof, but they definitely made a statement. The topic of the week, the Senate heard a medical marijuana bill. Is it was it Senate Bill 420 by any chance? It was not. It should have been. Maybe take that complaint up with Senator Raven. So they put it in a judiciary committee this Wednesday. Yeah, it was in committee yesterday and boy was that committee room packed. I was there for a different bill and when I got there there was only one seat available and then they started filling up the back uh, legislator seats with folks from the public because there were just so many people there to hear this bill. And it was for discussion only. They announced they were not going to take any votes. They were just there to hear the bill out. How did it all play out? First of all, the bill, what the bill does is allows for medical marijuana, not recreational marijuana. And I believe it has that federal if it's allowed federally, but it's for several conditions, cancer, epilepsy, PTSD, those sorts of issues. And in the committee, some military veterans spoke and testified, and you just saw all over Twitter, people were like, wow, this was really moving. And I think that made it maybe made a difference, but people still spoke out against it, kind of the people you would expect. And so... It's not clear whether or not it's going to come back up for a vote in an actual committee or if that was just an airing of the bill. Is it one of those bills where you get the sense that senators are in committee, they hear the testimony, they know it's a good bill, they know this is coming, they know they should probably support it, but the politics doesn't feel like it's there To vote for it would mean your opposition in your district would just do a mailer on you that would wipe you out. Sure. Hard vote to take. What's remarkable about this particular bill is its bill sponsor. Senator Rabin, the powerful rules chair of the Senate, was the bill sponsor of the is the bill sponsor of this bill. And when it was first filed, that was a huge news story. Like, hey, it's not just Democrats anymore. They have gained some traction with Republicans, and not just any Republican, Senator Rabin. Senator Rabin is a cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. He fought cancer over 20 years ago. In my conversations with Senator Rabin, he had stage 3 cancer and really took some aggressive treatment to cure his cancer, and he's been cancer-free, he said, for two decades. But he lived through cancer, and he said it was it was wrenching to, to live through it. And he has seen people die of cancer, and he's been affected by this. And this is legislation he's been working on, he said yesterday, since he got here. Wow. But it really had just kind of boiled up this session to see his name on this bill in the very conservative Senate, it it got a lot of attention. And some people are very optimistic that because of what he did yesterday in in bringing this bill forward, that he he really put it 
on a, a better timeline moving forward. It may not happen this session, but many people think that medicinal marijuana is coming to North Carolina in our lifetime. Speaking of Senator Bill Rabin, the powerful rules chairman in the Senate, he came to our office last week and sat down and we had a conversation with him. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Bill Rabin, thanks for joining us on the podcast, the Rules Chairman of the Senate. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Senator Rabin, first, tell us about your district. It starts in Brunswick County, but then it expands into other counties, right? Yes, I have I have uh, three whole counties and a portion of another. I have all of Brunswick, uh, all of Bladen, all of Pender, uh, and just a little part of uh, New Hanover. Before getting into the North Carolina Senate, you made a career as a veterinarian. Right. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Well, it's a rewarding career and one I've never regretted being in. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's not something you go into to make a lot of money at, but it's something you go into to enjoy life and enjoy what you do. So it's... Uh, it, I th- it proffers a good lifestyle. I, I think I read that you were the first veterinarian in your county. Is that true? I was. Came right out of school and uh, built a building, hung a shingle, and went to work. Do you specialize? Is it you know dogs and cats, or do you do big animal? What what is it? Well, I'm retired as of uh, last week. Congratulations! But, uh, thank you. But uh, uh, I did uh, I did it all in the beginning. Okay. I okay. mean all. Yeah. And then. Uh, uh, as the county grew and as my practice grew, uh, I uh, started doing only dogs and cats. Okay. I ended up on dogs and cats. And you're a native North Carolinian? I am. Okay. I am. I, I grew up in Columbus County, a, a good, just a stone's throw away from uh, uh, where I live now in Brunswick County. And my family is originally from Brunswick County okay. uh, for okay. a, few, a few hundred years. Okay. And uh, we had a farm there, and so I always wanted to go back to Brunswick County. It was one of the things that uh, um, helped me decide what I wanted to do and, and where I wanted to be. You held some local positions before coming to the state Senate. What made you interested in politics as a veterinarian? Well, <laughs> I talked to a lot of people as a vet, mm-hmm. uh, and I saw a lot of growth in our county uh, and, and in the area. And I, uh, I have always... Uh, I, I, I don't want to say I gave a lot, but but I put a lot of time uh, into the into the local area and served on boards. I probably had well over a hundred years of board service on wow. uh, various boards uh, before I took the plunge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had been uh, uh, chairman of the health board for over a decade, I think. Hard to remember at my age how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably twenty plus years on. Uh, 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 on the community college board mm-hmm. and uh, uh, some other state boards and this and that. And, and generally, I was on two or three boards at a time. Wow. So a couple of nights every week, uh, I was at board meetings. So you've always been incredibly active in your community, and then you just decided to take the plunge up to the North Carolina Senate? Yes. Okay. 
And that was a big, I mean, you came in in the class of 2011, right? That was the takeover year. It was. Yeah, and who did you challenge to get that? I, I, actually, it became open. Uh, many of the senators, uh, uh, Senator Hoyle, Senator Souls, uh, Senator Bass Knight, um, uh, all of those guys decided not to run, if you recall, in that uh -huh. year. And so there were a lot of open seats. Okay. And okay. Uh, my seat was open. And so, uh, but uh, I filed. I know one was the first Republican from, was from uh, Brunswick County. Yeah. In the Senate. Uh, probably the first to ever win uh, Columbus County. Right. Regardless. Senator R.C. Souls, who just passed away yes. a, a few months yeah. ago, held that seat. Yes. Long time forever. legislator. Forever. Yeah. You seem very conservative, but you, you don't seem to be a big fan of, of a lot of the social issues. Is that fair or am I oversimplifying? No, I think that? you're spot on. I'm a veterinarian, so that means that I'm going to be very uh, physically conservative. Yeah. We don't have third-party pay. You have to make your way. Right. Uh, I've always said uh, veterinarians were the only people on earth that could get ointment back in a tube uh, <laughs> by, by using so little of it. Right. Uh, we just use what's needed. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, try to make our way. Uh, many times, uh, with, with your with your patients, particularly in the past, uh, people couldn't afford to pay, so you had to, you know, you had to uh, do the best you could for them and their pets on a shoestring. Yeah, uh, and you, you realize that it can be done. Yeah, we have a lot more uh, wants than we have needs. Uh, so I'm very physically conservative. Um, with with my money and and with taxpayers money uh but at the same time i just don't think that the the government uh, has a voice in everything that government wants to have its voice in today that uh, deals with uh, people's individual lives and their lifestyles and that's kind of um an old school thinking in the Republican Party, right? It used yes. uh, yeah. the, this this kind of libertarian streak. Was that how you would describe yourself more of a libertarian conservative? Um, I'm not as anti-government. I don't think all government is bad. Mm. Uh, I think you have to have some government and some rules for people to live together uh, peacefully and happily. Uh, I don't think we were put here to tell our neighbors how to live. You don't do a lot of interviews. Can you talk a little bit sure. about why you don't do a lot of interviews? And by the way, thank you for coming on this oh, podcast. Happy, happy to. Yeah. Happy to. Um, yes, I, I'm, I'm severely hearing impaired and I have been most if not all of my life mm. uh, and uh, so that made me uh, like reading uh, and like standing back and uh, listening as best I could to what was going on uh, but uh, I miss a lot of conversations okay. and uh, even on the floor you know I, I have uh, 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 my computer somewhat tells me what people are saying I don't hear a word I only hear noise when I'm on the floor of the Senate wow. and so I don't talk a lot Okay. Because if I'm asked a question, uh, not that I would be embarrassed, but the fact that I would not, uh, if, I, if the person is not close enough for me to read their lips, I don't have a clue what they're asking me. I have to try to ad lib. And so, you know, I, I try to not talk a lot and listen the best I can and watch the body language and the other things that uh, kind of understand what people are saying by doing. And that's what hearing impaired people do. You are in one of the most high profile positions in North Carolina politics. Having a hearing impediment must be very challenging. And to do this job, how do you meander that as a legislator? You know, I guess if you have a handicap, uh, you sort of think everyone else has the same handicap. 
Okay. And you think of yourself as being normal. Right. And that is being abnormal, at least I hope people do. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I think I'm on a pretty even playing field. If, if I have my back turned, I don't hear people. Um, but if I'm close to them and I'm staring them in the face as I am you right now, mm-hmm. uh, I, can, I can understand most of what's going on. Of course, these help a lot too. Yeah, the headphones. Yeah, that headphones are there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what your position entails and what the responsibilities on a day-to-day basis are for you? Sure. Um, what what the, the rules chairman does is we uh, uh, House or Senate, but uh, pretty much all rules chairs uh, handle the calendar, the floor calendar, and what goes on. Uh, what uh, and we sort of tr- keep uh, just a steady flow of of uh, legislation going through the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, so that we have something to do all the time. That we don't outrun our headlights. We don't overload committees. Uh, we try to vet uh, the bills before we put them in the committee, and uh, see if there's something that uh, uh, number one a good is good policy. Mm-hmm. If, if it's good public policy, is it good for the state? Um, of course, that's one-sided because it's just good for the state through mm-hmm. uh, the, the conservative, the Republican mm-hmm. eyes. That's right. Uh, that's, that's the way that is. Uh, and we decide which committees hear which bills and how they flow through committee. And we have to, you know, keep uh, keep track of uh, whether it's a uh, how many committees it has to go to, whether it's a roll call bill or not a roll call bill, whether it's just a plain public bill or whether it's a uh, whether it's a local bill and try to balance those. It's just a balancing act to make sure that we stay busy, uh, that we meet deadlines, and that uh, we try to get good legislation uh, to the floor and to the governor's desk. When I first started at the General Assembly, the Rules Committee did not meet a lot. It was either a committee where bills went to die, Mm -hmm. or it was a committee where bills went to get fast-tracked. Anything in between went straight to the other committees. Can you talk about the, what the thinking was as it's evolved into now a bill goes to your committee first, then it goes to the committees, then it comes back to your committee. And this is something that now the House has kind of picked up on. You have to do a one, one last stop in the House Rules Committee before it goes to the House floor. So this has been a, an evolution. What was the thinking behind that? It was something that I started uh, when I became rules chair uh, because I thought... Uh, you know, I, uh, I along with the uh, other chairs and what have you, but I sort of determine what bills go to committee, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. and what bills don't, which is the hard part. They call me Doctor No, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but bills, as you know, change in committee. Right. And so the bill that I sent to the committee, or that left rules on its first stop, by the time it gets to the floor, maybe. Diametrically different. Yeah, you've seen it many, many times. Many times. And so, what what I thought was a better plan uh, was to have every rule, I mean, every bill before it went to the floor, have one last stop back in rules. Uh, And the rules committee, as as you know, is made up of the more senior uh, members of both chambers. Yeah. Uh, And uh, uh, level-headed, been around the block. Uh, great committee of, uh, of, of folks, and uh, uh, once it gets to the rules committee, before it goes to the floor, it is in its final form. Yeah. I don't accept any uh, 
amendments or changes to the bill. Okay. Uh, once it's there, it, it's what the public is going to see and what the body is going to see the next day or when it is calendared. So there's not a surprise. Yeah. Uh, no one, no one can say. And it's a little layover, so every everyone uh, that didn't get a chance to see it as it came out of committee has a day or so to see that bill and decide whether or not they want to vote on it. And I think it, I think it speeds up the floor time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing that uh, it uh, that that I do, and, and I'm not saying I, I think a lot of chairmen do this, uh, but. Every single bill that comes before rules for its last stop, I ask for public comment. Yeah, you do that. And and if uh, uh, someone wants to speak, we hear them out. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, the process. I think everyone should have a chance. And some committees call for public comments. I'm a very busy, and they don't, but we just take the time and rules, and everyone's going to have a chance if they want to speak to speak, and we hear them out. As a lobbyist, I, I really appreciate that last dip in rules. One of the things you didn't know 15 years ago was when a bill was going to hit the floor. It right. was always kind of a, well, it could be Thursday, could be Monday night. But having that last dip, usually you announce, you know, when it's going to the yes. floor. And that that helps because, yeah, it helps with our yeah. time. Um, and, and I do appreciate that last chance to to make a comment in support or, or sometimes you have to oppose it. Sure. Yeah. I have another question about rules. Okay. What is your favorite Senate rule? Uh, I think that may be rule eight and that is save for later date. That <laughs> 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 blank rule. Hey. Uh, That's funny. Uh, uh, you know, one of the best rules that, uh, one of the best rules I think that we have is the rule that uh, covers decorum. Yeah. And that senators will uh, treat each other uh, with respect on the floor, mm-hmm. and we do that. Even when we get heated, uh, we we respect one another and we respect uh, each other's opinions. We would, disagree, but we respect. Would you say true or false that the Senate has more decorum than the House? Well, you know, there's only one answer to a true or false, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the correct answer. But uh, that answer is true. <laughs> I say that for my house friends, so they hope they listen and yeah. get on me about it. Well, it brings up, our, you know, the question we try to ask, well, we do ask every guest, is um, around uh, this magic wand, what would you change to fix our this toxic environment we're in? Well, uh, I don't do social media. Good for mm-hmm. you. Uh, and it, it's just that... Uh, um, you know, many times you say or something on the spur of a moment without thinking, and if you haven't thought about it and you, you tweet something or you go to Facebook something, you could regret it and it might really not be you and not really be what you would have done if you'd stepped back and thought about it. Or someone can say something to you and you fire back at them. Yeah. That's human nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think sometimes it's better just to say nothing than say something bad about someone. So would you say people get off social media? Is that is that your answer? Um, to well, that? I think they should. They we have to communicate some way, and it, it has evolved. It's ahead of me, and ahead of my time. Uh, so if if that's what they enjoy, and some people do it all day and all night, that that's for them to enjoy. But it's just not one of my things. Okay. Well, then what would you change? What, what how, how would you fix it? I tell you something that that I would do. I would look again at. Uh, 
uh, I get criticism for this, I would look again at our ethics laws, and I think I would set, uh, uh, I would set uh, some parameters, and those parameters would not be zero. Okay. Uh, because, uh, as you know, uh, a legislator uh, is suspect if they're just seen with a lobbyist having yeah. dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we don't develop the relationships. Maybe we went too far before, yeah. and maybe we went too far in the knee-jerk in correcting that, but we don't develop those relationships uh, with uh, with. Uh, the other party, we don't develop the relationship with the lobbyist, yeah. uh, and politics is about relationships. So You've got to trust who you're dealing with. It's about trust and relationships, and we don't have an opportunity to build those, that trust and those relationships, and you can't do it in a committee meeting, and you can't do it on the floor. You have to have some spare time, and you sit down together, and you get to know a person, and a person's family. And, yeah. uh, you, Breaking bread with someone, sharing a drink. You know, when I first came in, it was very common to see uh, bipartisan dinners. I, I tell the story often, Senator Ham Horton from mm-hmm. Winston-Salem and Senator Ellie Kinnaird were often seen on Monday nights yeah. with lobbyists. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Senator Kinnaird would not let you buy her dinner, even pre, but it, it, it was fun. And it was more, there, there was more socializing. And, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, Senator Kennard. Um, <laughs> she was quite a person, yeah. but she was a delightful lady. Yeah. And she was as liberal as I am conservative. That's right. But I always found her delightful and enjoyed talking with her. And we talked about some of the darndest things and uh, had some things in common because I was a freshman and had time. And she was in the minority and, and took the time yeah. uh, to take me. I have fond memories of her, by the way. And, yeah. And Senator Ham Horton was as conservative as the day yeah. is long. And uh, they would scrap it out uh, those Monday night sessions and then off to dinner. Good after Yeah. Yeah. Like rugby teams. That's right. Well, Senator Bill Rabin, we appreciate you coming on to the podcast. We appreciate all you do for your district, all you do for the Senate, all you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. You. Many of us who work in the building and have done work with Senator Rabin, been in conversations, we knew that he was hard of hearing. Sure. He would tell you, speak up, say it again. I did not know to the extent that he cannot hear, and it's been something that he has dealt with his entire life. Yeah, it was really moving. I talked to him after the podcast interview this week, and he, he comes up to me in the hallway over on the Senate side. And I found myself really looking at him, articulating exactly what I was saying, and also trying to move my mouth in a way that he could read my lips. And I use expression to help communicate with him. Ever since the interview, I think that we have connected in a better way. And I noticed a, a staff person came up to him, Julie Bradburn, and I noticed when she was talking to him, she positioned herself directly in front of him, and she did the same thing. And it was an easy way for Senator Rabin to listen and communicate back. It was kind of a, a busy 
uh, hallway. What I also noticed is that some other lobbyists were trying to get his attention, and it looked as if he was ignoring them. Maybe he was. But oftentimes, I think people don't realize that Senator Rabin cannot hear. I also thought it was interesting about this interview is how he views this disability. For many folks, they see a disability as something that holds them back. I feel that this particular disability in the position he's in, now that I've reflected on it, seems to be a strength for him. Makes it easier to say no. If you can't hear them, you don't even have to say no, right? You just ignore them. We really appreciated him being on the podcast. Honored that he would be here because it's true. You, you don't see him doing interviews, TV, radio, podcasts. But for him to come and spend some time with us last week and sit down for this conversation really meant a lot to me. Great. So we're having this rare Senate session on Friday. What are we expecting next week in the General Assembly? I expect... More bills to be moving. Bills have really been moving this week. A lot of committee hearings. And you're going to see a lot of lobbyists because of the budget process. I had a staffer say to me the other day, I think it was Tuesday, I was like, who are all these people here? And he's like, I think some people just realize that they work here sometimes. Right. That's right. (laughs) Um, So I think that as the House budget process really ramps up, And I think folks have the general perspective that the House will give you more than the Senate. So you'll see a lot of people asking for what they want. If you were in the Senate budget, your goal is to get the House to do what the Senate did, because then theoretically, you don't have to negotiate anymore. Although that is not true. I've seen things come out of a budget that were in both chambers. If you weren't in the Senate, you're trying to get into the House because you feel like that puts you in a position between the conferees to at least have a 50-50 chance. But again, there's an exception to this rule. I've seen a budget come out of conference that included spending priorities that were in neither budget. Yeah. Someone I know does that sometimes. It's fun. (laughs) I think also next week we will see that energy bill Mm-hmm. in a new form and I think that there's some compromise language coming out of that bill so big story from last week we are going to probably see that move forward next week mm-hmm. last week we we read a mean tweet that was directed to us and maybe Senator Todd Johnson and folks like the mean tweets we didn't get a mean tweet this week but what we're gonna do Every week, we are going to feature a tweet of the week. This week, there was a tweet that included video from the Judiciary Committee that was hearing the medicinal marijuana bill. So it was a tweet from Pete Callender. Mm-hmm. Callender? How do you say it? I don't know. So the tweet from Pete Callender. What's his handle? At Pete Callender. Okay. That it said it sure did look like Senator Jackson was snoozing during the medicinal marijuana discussion. He kind of like twitches and falls asleep. And then I saw a funny uh, quote tweet of that that said, sleeping Jeff Jackson is by far the most palatable Jeff Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a funny video. It's about 30 seconds long. You can't really tell if he's sleeping or not until you wait for it. At the end, there's a little twitch, eyes open, 
And it was a funny moment. Look, this isn't the first time. We've all been there. We've all been there. Not the first time a senator or a House member has fallen asleep during a committee meeting. Yesterday in GenGov, all three sergeant-at-arms were asleep, and that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, I've seen staff members fall asleep in meetings with me. (laughs) Uh, There was a former senator. He actually served in the House as well. uh, Senator Ed Jones, former highway patrolman. His ability to fall asleep on the House and Senate floor and wake up just in time to press green or red was one of the more hilarious things to watch from the House and Senate gallery, uh, two chambers that he served in over his career. We'll put that tweet, which includes a video, in the show notes. You can see it for yourself. Tell us what you think. It's been a fun budget week. I'm looking forward to getting over to the House and doing some work. In the meantime, Brian has to get off because he has to go be a star in Capitol tonight. That's right. I got to get on Capitol tonight at 1230. I'm so hard with all my media engagements. (laughs) No. We hope you take the time to rate and review this podcast. Give us five stars. Leave a comment. Help listeners find us. We hope you have a relaxing weekend and a great week next week and remember to do politics better (coughs) man in stereo just got your snot all over the mic